This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Good evening to all. My name is Nimrod Mbele and welcome to um, Beyond Governance um, on this glorious uh, Tuesday afternoon. Um, I'm not flying solo tonight. Uh, I've, I've got an in-studio guest uh, who has become a regular to the show. Her name is Joanne Matheson, who is the head of TMF. Uh, uh, she, she's the head of governance, corporate governance, I beg your pardon, at TMF. Um, before you proceed with my in-studio in guest, I want to thank uh, my predecessors, Howard Fellman, Sasha Starr, and of course I'm not far solo. As always, I've got Vusi who will be nagging me around the buttons and making sure that the show I live up to the expectation, as always. Um, having said that, um, you know, it's very sad that we have to start the show by recognizing, I think it's important that we recognize what has happened in, in Las Vegas. Uh, it's quite dreadful that people have gone out to have fun and, and all what you have is nothing but misery. Um, I don't know, Joanne, what's your take on that? I mean, it's absolutely shocking. It is absolutely shocking. I think the world is becoming more and more violent. And the problem is, all, particularly the one in Vegas, seems to be completely random. There's no information yet of whether it's related to some kind of ideology or what. And that makes it very difficult to control if these... Um, Acts of violence are terribly random. And, I mean, if there's no ideology attached to it, it's, it's even more bewildering. Because all we're saying, but what, what could have driven this man to, 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 to create such unpleasant um, history, as it were? I mean, you, you can't, you're quite correct by saying if there was a, an ideological difference, um, if somehow we maybe he left a note or there was something of substance that we can look at, not to say uh, killing people, you know, but it's a matter of us trying to to understand or picture exactly what went in in his head. But there's nothing to go by. There isn't, but I think it also talks to another disturbing trend worldwide, and particularly in South Africa, unfortunately, that people feel that their grievances aren't being heard, and so they get more and more desperate and the levels of violence pick up until we get to a point where violence becomes acceptable. It doesn't have the horror factor anymore, and that is particularly disturbing because there are more and more violent attacks. Some, a lot, are related to ideology, but the problem is it's becoming an acceptable way of dealing with conflicts and problems. Talking of what is acceptable or unacceptable, I was quite uh, uh, taken aback and actually, uh, frankly speaking, very disturbed about what we saw over the weekend in, in at Eastern Cape when the ANC uh, conference, people throwing chairs at each other. Uh, it was one of those shocking incidents. But coming back to your point, I mean, violence has become a norm. Uh, at some point, this is where uh, we need leadership uh, to rise above petty politics and really put society um, uh, ahead of, of selfish interest. Well, absolutely, because it's particularly disturbing that this was a, a, a government uh, organization and the leadership did nothing about it. And I think it's exacerbated by parties like the EFF with their antics in parliament that have also made this... Fashionable. Fashionable. Yes, that's a good word for it. Fashionable, this culture of violence and hysteria that is completely and utterly unproductive. I mean, if you think 
think of the whole dismantling of apartheid, at the end of the day, mm. it happens through negotiation. Because a key issue which you hear all over the world, but we can't negotiate with our enemies, they don't believe what we believe. But who else are you going to negotiate with? You're not going to get anywhere unless you negotiate with your enemies. And yes, you do start far apart. And since we are on a Jewish program, I'm going to quote from Ethics from Sinai that actually says, if, they, if you hate somebody, what you need to do is spend time with them so that you can find out what it is that you have in common rather than focus on what you have as differences. And the same repl- applies the same principle applies to any kind of negotiation. You need to focus on the quick wins. What are the areas where you can find common ground and build a relationship of trust so that you can then deal with the harder issues once you've established a firm foundation of trust? Well, anyway, I couldn't agree with you more uh, there, Joanne. Uh, let's come back to the issue uh, of the conversation for tonight. Tonight we're really talking, it's actually a build-up of what has been taking place um, um, over the couple of months or so to, um, ago. Um, pertinent to tonight's conversation, it's all about um, the KPMG trillion as well as um, a, a, a treasury around uh, issues that we all know that they're out there. Uh, and, and this fundamentally ask, um, and begs the question, which uh, I would want you to share with us and, and perhaps maybe illuminate our thoughts processes around it. Um, we have seen these incidences of corruption and maladministration, um, which elevates the importance of leadership or ethical leadership. Um, perhaps maybe, you know, while we're still on that point, what I want you to, to reflect on is is... Now that issue, I mean, the, the, the KPMG issue has been there, um, do, do you think it, it is an isolated incident or it's something that has been there for a while? It's definitely not an isolated incident. Um, first of all, KPMG has had a relationship with the Gaptas for several years, and the press has been exposing stories about dubious transactions for a very long time. And I think what is particularly disturbing is that KPMG has only reacted publicly once the pressure is on them. So it doesn't in any way, in my view, demonstrate ethical leadership. It demonstrates we've been caught How do we maneuver out of this and keep our reputation intact? If they had dealt with it long ago at the beginning, they would have retained the moral high ground. A follow-up question, Joanne, if you may. Um, This is not, I mean, I agree with you, this is not an isolated incident within the auditing fraternity. We have seen how Arthur Anderson um, uh, messed up. We've seen how um, PwC messed up at some point. So clearly there's something wrong within the auditing fraternity, which begs the question from a leadership point of view, um, both because the show is all about corporate governance. If you're talking corporate governance, you're talking ethical leadership from board, executive, and all the way downwards. And and if all these issues have been you know unfolding, um, what does that say about the, the, the audit committee of the board in terms of its credibility to thoroughly interrogate uh, the submission and reports uh, uh, to make sure that everything is kosher? I think it would talk to the whole chain 
because your members of your audit committee are obviously board members. So I think when a board is selecting candidates, it needs to do a proper skills matrix, which is tied in with the strategy. So they need to look, what is the strategy? What are the type of skills we need to fulfill that strategy? And obviously taking into account other issues like diversity, demographics, age, because age, people of different generations have a different standpoint. You don't want like-minded people on a board. So if you've done a proper process, a proper governance process of appointing your board, when it comes to the audit committee, you would choose somebody who's highly financially literate, has had a lot of experience because an been on the audit committee and particularly as chairman of an audit committee in this particular environment is extremely onerous. And as you're well aware, in terms of the Companies Act, directors can incur personal liability, which is not something to be taken lightly. But then it also talks to the whole assurance process before documentation gets to the audit committee. And that would mean having a financial team that the audit committee and the board can rely on. And that is, in fact, incorporated into the Companies Act, which says that the board is entitled to rely on the information provided by management. So that is one level of assurance. Another is your internal uh, audit. And then the audit committee would do its own interrogation. And a bigger company might even go further. Um, I've seen it in very large listed companies where they have independent assurance of the audit process. But, I mean, you, you have to have a big budget to do that. But it's something that has to be taken very, very seriously. But for big boys such as KPMG, PwC, um, as well as I mean, the defunct uh, Arthur Anderson, um, financial literacy at the uh, board level, but also at all the committees, it, it, it's a foregone conclusion that these are entities that are driven by people who are well-read, well-experienced around, you know, um, uh, you know, the, most of them are chartered accountant, um, in, you know, to provide advisory and around tax and, st- and stuff like that. Um, Secondly, issues of assurance that you that you made mention of, um, and, and lastly, the internal uh, audit uh, processes that needs to be there. These companies have those. How do you account for for this kind of mess? Because uh, financial literacy. I mean, if 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 we, for an example, uh, uh, we're talking of a small company um, that doesn't really have a balance sheet that KPMG does, you could say, well, perhaps maybe you know this is a one man show. Um, you know, he's a director, a super cleaner, a receptionist, and God knows what. Um, issues around uh, a financial literacy, particularly around financial management, are there. You know, for me, it begs the question around political will. Uh, it says these are some of the things that have been happening for some time. It is just the environment was conducive for them to turn a blind eye on. I agree with you, and I would take it a bit further and say that technical competency and expertise in any field is often only a small part of a job. If you're a person of integrity 
and you don't know something, you'll always make a plan to find out the technical side. But if you've got incredible technical expertise and you're not a person of integrity, you'll turn a blind eye to things that don't suit you or things that may benefit from you, that may benefit you on a personal level. So I think it goes back to the very beginning of our discussion that ethical leadership is absolutely critical because the culture of a company starts from the top. And unfortunately, if we have huge ethical problems at a political level, it makes it very hard for business as well because government should create the enabling environment. And part of the enabling environment is that in the private sector or in the public sector, if somebody doesn't behave ethically or behaves criminally, they should know without any doubt that there is is a process. They're going to get caught and they're going to get punished, whereas we don't have any of that functioning at the moment. We have certain institutions that are absolutely marvellous. For example, Corruption Watch, the Competition Commission, which is very robust. But our justice system is failing. We've got corruption in the police force. Files disappear. So there's a culture of impunity all the way through society. So that makes it easy for a person with knowledge, not only how to implement the rules, but how to get round the rules to get away with all sorts of creative accounting. <laughs> we'll take a break. Let's come back in a second. Uh, well, before we take a break, we, I'm, I'm joined in studio by Joanne Matteson, who is the head of corporate governance at TMF. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 23 after 6 o'clock. Um, uh, as always, we appreciate your thoughts, your comments. Uh, drop us an SMS at 345195. And, of course, my email address is nimrod at highfm.co.za. Uh, in studio, I'm joined by John Madison, who is the head of corporate governance at TMF Group. Uh, before we enter the break, the question that I put through to her is, is uh, for those that have just joined us, uh, we're talking um, the, the, the colossal or the fail of corporate governance in, 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 in major institutions. And, and we reflected a little bit on, on, on ethical leadership, which, which is a currency that is in dire need, because if you're, ele- if you're able to elevate ethical conduct and ethical leadership, um, at the narrow self-interests are likely to be addressed um, uh, by, by, by those who are keen to see us moving forward as a country and, of course, as, as, as business. Uh, and one of the questions, perhaps maybe as a follow-up, Joanne, is that of, because remember, when you're looking of accountability, we have accountability at an executive level, above level, above that you have accountability at a board level, and, and beyond the board level, we have institutions that provide oversight, whether it be government, in this particular instance, we're talking uh, uh, in institutions such as the, 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 the board of auditors. Um, what does this mean for, given the fact that we have had precedent internationally around, around uh, Arthur Anderson, we've had precedent around uh, PwC and so on and so forth. What does it mean from audit bodies that oversee these kinds of issues? Well, I think it goes back to my earlier point that they need to be proactive as well. 
I mean, Urba can only look – it, it has a fairly narrow mandate and it can only look at the accounting issues, and I think it is proceeding along those lines. At what point it got involved and, it, at, and how its mandate is constituted as to when it can be involved, I don't have those specific details, but <laughs> I suspect they co- probably could have been a bit more proactive. Psyche – has a higher profile and a broader mandate because it governs the accounting profession in its entirety. And how it handles this talks to its credibility, which impacts the whole accounting profession. Because if people don't feel, if the public doesn't feel that an institution like SICA has credibility and trust, it lowers the whole brand of accountancy. And if we don't have auditors and forensic auditors in particular that have credibility, then we really are in serious trouble. So the public is looking at them very, very carefully to see what they do. And they have a very onerous task and they better handle it with the absolute and utmost integrity. Absolutely. Uh, maybe as a follow-up question, uh, because we've seen how um, business community has responded to, to, to this particular issue, which was quite laudable in my view, because um, that's where leadership is all about. You say, you say, look, we cannot be seen, we cannot be associated, we, we cannot afford to, to associate ourselves with this kind of shenanigans. Um, let us suspend you. Uh, we've seen massive withdrawals. A number of institu- key institutions uh, have withdrawn their support for KPMG and stuff like that. But um, would you say that there's on on the, on the business association side of things? Because ultimately, there is a body that represent apex, or that represent business uh, interest, or that represent all the business in South Africa. Would you say? Um, the, the position taken by the business leadership South Africa uh, in relation to this matter um, are, are critical and, and what else would they need to do to, to really uh, 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 punt the issue around ethical leadership? I think the issue that has been most encouraging is to see the pressure and the impact that business can have when they get together to do something and the impact of boycotting a company, how effective that can be. If we look at the whole process where, the, where Oak Bay was forced um, by the banks to close down its accounts, that was an incredibly effective strategy of the banks. But when I look at the KPMG issue, I think there's some nuances that need to be taken into account. I think that each company that has KPMG as, it audit, as its auditors needs to meet with the relevant people, understand the issues, and make a very informed decision about withdrawing their business. Because one of the issues that worries me is I have no doubt that there are people who are ethical in KPNG. I don't for one moment think that the corruption permeates the whole organization. And if more and more companies are withdrawing their business, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to be a lot of innocent people. And 
they, because they're going to be branded as XKPMG people, they might be ethical and have superb skills, but more than likely they are probably going to struggle to find another job. Another implication is we, we only have four big auditing firms. If you take away KPMG, you only have three, and the big companies need that level of expertise and mass for uh, their big audits. So I think it's going, it could have certain ne- negative consequences for the auditing and accounting industry. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, I think it's, it's, it's fair that we, we acknowledge the fact that within an entity, there are a lot of credible individuals. The fact that there were few rotten apples at the top doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who, 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 who is a member of that institution is corrupt. Okay, and part of the investigation, which leads to my next question, part of the investigation obviously would have to recognize the the broader implication and, uh, uh, of 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 this issue and the extent to which to which there has been sufficient uh, assessment, risk assessment, sufficient uh, interrogation of these issues uh, to warrant uh, a fresh perspective in terms of how KPMG will look like. Uh, henceforth, you know, so so, I suppose one would say um, it's it's premature for us to be talking of the whether the kind of of punishment muted against uh, KPMG will fit the crime because investigations are still undergoing. Your your take on that? I I would agree with you, and um, the results of the investigations are happening on all different levels. As we've already mentioned, there's Uber, there's Psycho, there are other investigations going on as well. But I think another point that worries me is because we're in an environment of so much corruption, and I think the public and business to a large extent feels impotent, particularly in the area of socks, that KPMG seems to be an easy target for people to vent all their anger on. So I am a little bit concerned that maybe the story is taking on a life of its own and that part of the punishment and the withdrawal of business might be a little bit out of proportion to what the issues are. I mean, there was an article in today's paper that was another twist on this whole issue that Johan van der Volt now says he stands by his original report on Mm -hmm. SARS. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, well, that means you've got to relook at everything all over again. So there's no telling which way all this is going to go. And he says he didn't speak out before because he was under a confidentiality agreement. So at this stage, we have no idea where, where that little subplot is going to go. Well, well for me, I think what, what is also quite critical and something that perhaps maybe um, we need to look at positively is the fact that the KPMG SAC has introduced the, the need for the rotation. Because we've had, instu- I mean, the big four, if you like, they they have been literally, mono- you know, they've monopolized the auditing space, uh, and there hasn't really been enough competition among these guys. Um, that's that's my take. Um, that suddenly there, there's now enough room, or or the the narrative that calls for rotation of auditing firms, so that you're able to manage the conflict of interest. 
uh, which have been demonstrated by how KPMG uh, got itself into this. Um, what's your take of that? Because ultimately, when we have a rotation system, um, it, it brings vibrancy in the system in that um, uh, inherently the conflict of interest, which which is likely to be there, can be managed differently. Well, I think they are different levels of rotation. I'm absolutely in favor of audit partner rotation. Audit firm rotation, what worries me about that is, first of all, it hasn't been successful in many jurisdictions overseas, and I think one must look at precedent. The other issue that worries me about that is I believe that the principle for director rotation and audit rotation should have the same principle, and there's nothing like that in regard to directors. The uh, King 3 report said that you should assess the independence of a director after nine years, and it should be a very vigorous assessment thereafter and evaluate it. But now in King 4, the process has been independence is a state of mind, and whether you're executive or non-executive, you should always have an independent approach to what you're doing. So my view, and I believe in principles when it comes to governance, if that principle works for directors, surely the same principle must work for auditors. You you can't want the same outcome of independence but have different rules and different processes. It, it, it doesn't add up for me. It, 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 it is an interesting uh, view, Joanne, but I beg to differ with you. Uh, purely because there are a lot of assumptions that we're making in terms of how people relate. Okay, first and foremost, um, conflict of interest are a risk uh, that constitute ongoing risk all the time. Uh, If you've had an audit firm managing your books for 20 years, 30 years, what are the chances of of a causal relationship uh, manifesting in terms of how books um, are manufactured? The chances are quite high. And, and it really gives marriage around the importance of rotation in as much as directors ought to be independent. Um, the, 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 same pro, the whole process, again, from the auditing firm point of view, if it rotates, I mean, it's important because in, a, in, 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 in the as a board member, you'd know, I mean, your lifespan is about five years, okay, and we have someone else coming through. But from an auditing point of view, there are a lot of, you know, for me, that creates that opportunity that perhaps maybe uh, would, would, would make all the firms uh, much more credible. You certainly have a point. I think there are other points as well. Companies complain that when there is audit firm rotation, they lose a lot. It becomes more expensive. There's a lot of time that needs to be invested in getting the person on board. So I think there are a lot of arguments to be made either way. But I think it goes back to ethical leadership, ethical principles. If you're a person or a company of ethic that behaves ethically, then you should always keep an arm's length distance from your clients. You shouldn't be doing too much socializing. And I think this, to the best of my knowledge, this has been an opportunity 
where audit firms are reviewing their hospitality policies and code of ethics, you know, because at the end of an audit, it's, it used to be very common practice to take your client out for a big lunch. My understanding is that practices like that are now being reviewed in order to maintain the arm's length relationship. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, how many, of course, I mean, how many incidents were those that are, you know, uh, sports fanatics, you know, getting, getting uh, free tickets to net bank, um, golf tournaments and all of you. Um, unfortunately, that kind of um, relationship is bound to influence certain decisions in terms of moving, uh, taking the business forward. But anyway, that's, that's, that's a conversation for another day. Um, if you've just joined us, I'm, I'm in studio with Joanne Matheson, who is the head of corporate governance at TMF. And we're talking KPMG. We're talking um, all shenanigans around corporate governance uh, from the perspective of the board and say, what does it mean for the board? What does it mean for the executive? And what does it mean for auditing institution in moving all these entities in, in unison? Uh, my next question for you, Joanne, is, is that... Let's look at, I mean, you and I have agreed that the culture of impunity um, has given the rise for KPMG, Trillion, and other institutions to behave unethically. So which means, moving forward, we can't look at KPMG in isolation. We have to look at the entire uh, ecosystem of business because we'll be missing the point by looking at one. Uh, government is fraught with corruption. We all know that, okay, because it takes two to tangle, so they say. So KPMG, uh, uh, Trillion, and other in- entities, we need to look at broadly looking at how we embed uh, a culture of ethical behavior. From a practical point of view, what is it that uh, uh, the likes of yourself who sit in boards, uh, who, who are advising boards, around uh, uh, efficiency, uh, productivity, and so on and so forth. What is that we need to be doing to embed a culture of, of ethical leadership? Well, I think the first problem is that at a government level, we have a culture of patronage. That's how people get jobs. That's how people get contracts. And if you look at the old system of corporate governance, boards were known to be a group of people, the old boys' club. So you had the same system in the private sector. And I think what has happened over the years, but a lot of it is unfortunately only on paper, but we're going to have to be more and more strict about it, is that you have proper policies. And in fact, the the public sector has very, very strict policies of how you should go about things, that if it was implemented correctly, uh, does require an arm's length relationship and is very, very strict. Sometimes it's too onerous, but the heart is in the right place. So I think one has to design policies that are both effective, productive, not too time-consuming, that fit the severity of the issue at hand, and you have to adhere to them. You can't give people jobs because... You like them or they're a friend. And obviously things like bribery and corruption, that has to be out of the system completely. It can't be regarded as an accepted way of doing business. I couldn't agree with you more there, Joanne. Uh, We're going to take a break and come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. 
Welcome back. It is now 19 to 7. I'm joined in studio by Joanne Mattison, who is the head of corporate governance at TMF. Uh, we are having a conversation around the importance of entrenching uh, corporate governance within institution. Uh, before we went to the break, um, you know, I put it to her around uh, the culture of impunity, um, which is very rife. But on the other hand, we I said to her, look, we, we do need to have consequence management. Um, in as much as we acknowledge that the culture of impunity has, it, it's so bad, but we are missing the opportunity by creating precedent around, uh, around, uh, accountability. Because if we have consequence management, if you arrest people, high profile individuals been arrested, okay, both in public sector and private sector, because we would not be having these kind of ongoing conversation because at some point you have to draw the line. Uh, your take on that? I think it's very important that when somebody joins a company, something like the Code of Ethics should be attached to their letter of employment. Somebody should take them through it, make sure they understand it, and part of the Code of Ethics should detail what are the consequences for non-compliance. So in respect of actually implementing consequent management, I think the severity of the issue needs to be handled in different ways. For example, if it's a process issue, I think it must be dealt with in a constructive manner, not a punitive manner. So then you would possibly have a training program Does the person understand how the supply chain management process works? If they don't, then training can be very helpful and it can actually be an added benefit to the company. If it is something like criminally, where a person is criminally liable, a person must know that irrespective of their position in the company, anybody who does something criminal will be prosecuted. For example, if you had a salesperson and he contributed so much to the company, a person who lacks integrity might be persuaded to turn the other way because if that person was out of the company, they would lose a lot of business. So those are the type of issues that have to be addressed. And if anybody feels that people are dealt with in a different way, then the whole system falls apart. People have to be treated equally and fairly. But I think there must be a distinction between things that can, consequent management, where things can actually be corrected, processes, decision-making can be improved, and how you deal with criminal activity. I'm, I'm tempted to reflect on our initial point, uh, especially on change management, which, in my view, uh, we don't see an appreciation of the importance of conducting change management from time to time because it is seen as a liability. And moreover, the the outputs or the thinking, it's more, it's, it's in some people's mind, it's hereditary, it's out there. Um, and, and that is why there isn't sufficient time spent or acknowledgement on the importance of change management uh, to reinforce ethical behavior, to reinforce ethical conduct. Um, taking this conversation a bit further and say, we've seen in, 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 in most instances, companies don't really reflect ethical behavior and ethical conduct 
as part of strategic thrust. The extent to which ethics and ethical conduct are elevated very define a, a prominence in organizational strategy. Um, w- would you say perhaps maybe that's where we that's that's where the gap is? I would agree with you absolutely, and I, unfortunately, I think change management when it comes to culture is something very very difficult. I've been in com- companies where there have been a number of mergers and acquisitions where culture integration and culture change hasn't been addressed, and it is very, very destructive. So I think, first of all, the person who does the culture management process has to be selected very carefully. There's a debate of whether it should be an internal person and an external person. So that person in itself has to have credibility with the company. So I would agree with you. It it has to be done and it's neglected. I think when a company goes through a merger or an acquisition, there's so much happening and the focus is often on the bottom line. Let's just get this better down. And they don't deal with the soft issues like culture, which can come back to bite them very hard down the line. Because this is where you have an opportunity to really embed um, ethical conduct because it's part of, of organizational culture. It's about the new uh, ethos which, which, which all we need to be aspiring for. Unless you have a, a champion that manages that sort of things, we're more likely to have this kind of stuff because ultimately when you look at the paper trail, it would be interesting actually to look at paper trail to say at what point has KPMG, as an example, um, reviewed organizational culture reviewed its ethical conduct, reviewed its policies. It would be quite interesting to see. I I would agree with you. I do know that a lot of uh, companies have annual surveys which deal with culture issues. The key issue to effect change is to report back to employees what was the outcome of that survey and, most importantly, what are you going to do about the issues that are I like are the latter part because most, in most instances, these cultural surveys are done purely to comply and, and, and because management is not ready to accept the feedback because in some instances, uh, feedback hits back at management in, in, in that they, they themselves are not appreciative of, of ethical way of doing business. It's all about the bottom line, you know, which, which, which and leads to my, my next question around the, the extent to which integrated thinking or integrated reporting um, has been elevated because this is where you begin to see how management takes issues around ethical leadership or ethical conduct to a higher level. I think integrated thinking, integrated decision-making and integrated reporting is a fantastic tool to identify what are the issues. So if you take the six capitals and brainstorm what are the outcomes on all your different stakeholders, and you need to spend a lot of time doing that in your strategic session, then you can identify the ethical issues right at the beginning of the process. And if it starts the process 
at the process point of view and the strategic point of view, it will start to go right through everything that a company does, which ultimately should improve its decision-making. And in its reporting process, if the consumers and the investors and stakeholders who read integrated reports feel that there's proper disclosure and transparency, it gives legitimacy to the company It builds trust in the organization and in their brands. And then the culture becomes something that over time is embedded in the organization. But it takes a long time and a lot of ongoing effort. Would you say South African companies are appreciative of the sixth capital uh, from integrated thinking point of view? Do do we, do we, is this something that uh, when when you uh, literally explode each of these capital, uh, whether it's finance, engineering, uh, uh, environment, uh, begin to fully appreciate how how important are these issues uh, uh, in terms of perhaps maybe unearthing the ethics or ethical implication of each of these capital. I think that it's embedded in listed companies because they're obliged to do integrated reporting. I think it's there in the public sector because it's also part of their reporting requirements. As you go lower down the line, I think a large, to a large extent it depends not only on the company but who they're dealing with. If they're customers are involved in integrated reporting, they will be asked to fit in with it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's becoming more and more acceptable, but I think there's still a long way to go. But listed companies are setting the example, and the standard is generally very, very high. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, I mean, I I believe that you are party to uh, uh, those kind of conversation, perhaps maybe in our next uh, 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 or given the next opportunity, we'll focus our energy on the importance of integrated reporting uh, by literally bringing one or two of the companies so that they can share their experiences and say how does that benefit the company because it is not just a question of re- of reporting. There, there, there's definitely material value associated with integrated reporting? Well, I think a key issue relating to that is if you go back into history, the shareholder was the primary stakeholder. Whereas if you look at business now, business and the uh, privately and in the public sector has a dual mandate. You have your commercial mandate and then you have your social license to operate. And if you look at a business, there is a very strong interdependent relationship with all the other stakeholders, the community and society. And if something is good for the company and the shareholder, it is very likely to be good for employees and consumers. If you don't have employees, you don't have people with money to spend on the products. So everything works together. So the whole concept of integrated thinking makes perfect sense to me. And and again, I, I, I find it, you know, interesting that we, we, we constantly have to go back to the importance of culture change because you cannot talk of appreciation of the six capitals if we don't, uh, you know, uh, bring everybody along the, 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 the need for constant... Uh, organizational change, organizational review, because it is through 
culture change that you are able to at least inculcate the the benefits of what uh, integrated thinking is all about uh, because we're no longer dealing with a shareholder we're taking we're dealing with other interest groups um, of which if we apply our minds in terms of how this company uh, uh, could leverage you know uh, you, you leverage the the, the seed capital it is likely to become a, a better company, not for the shareholders, but for everybody else. Well, I think in the current environment, it becomes easier to do because if you go back a couple of decades before the Internet specifically, companies would devise strategies depending on the nature of their business. A mining company would devise a strategy for 30 years, but with technology, the time periods of a strategy are becoming shorter and shorter. So many companies, I mean, particularly if they technology companies, would have to review their strategy often as frequently as every three months. So that is an opportunity to look at all the culture issues because as you look at innovation and disruption, you have to see what is the impact of all these things on the six capitals and on all your stakeholders. So there's definitely an opportunity to regularly embed integrated thinking into a business. Before before uh, we, we, we call it a quit, uh, Joanne, um, I just want to really want to get your, your, your thoughts around uh, this point, uh, which is the the corporate governance framework in South Africa, how does it compare with uh, that of the global community? Uh, Taking into account the kind of um, uh, maladministration, corruption, and and um, uh, uh, unfortunate incidents, incidents such as those, um, what does that really mean? How does that compare with us? I know the rest of the world is not that great enough, but we do have policies. But beyond policies is the what question. I think our corporate governance framework is something to be very proud of. If you go back right to King 1, 2, 3, 4, these documents have been acclaimed internationally. And if you look at other documents, they have often taken from the King reports fundamental principles and incorporated it into their own governance structures. And I think companies that have adhered to the various King reports have benefited enormously and each report has identified shortcomings of the earlier report and built on them. Um, So I know we're running out of time, but if we just very briefly from King 3 to King 4, there's a much greater emphasis on principles and qualitative outcomes. So I think we are making huge progress and I think we are one of the leaders in the world on corporate governance frameworks. Talking of leadership, how does this, um, you know, uh, all the King codes, from an application point of view, where did we go wrong uh, given the kind, given the, the number of, of uh, corruption incidents that we know in, in, in both public and private sector because it's one thing to have these wonderful codes that are laudable elsewhere. Uh, in, in our context, uh, if you were to zoom in in, in Kim Four, for an example, and say, where did KPMG go wrong? Or what is it that they could not do proper? Or, or, how, or how does this, how, how, how is this issue better informing the the look and feel of King 4? 
Well, King 4 is principle-based because you can't actually regulate behavior. So corporate governance codes fill in the complex issues that legislation can't. But you can't, if somebody is not ethical, if they don't believe in ethical principles, there's very little you can do other than in terms of of punishment and knowing that something will happen to you. But corporate governance doesn't, the King Code, for example, doesn't have the force of the law behind Mm it. It's a culture issue. It's behavioral. Could that be a limitation? It's behavior. Yes, it it is a limitation, but I can't see any Mm. way around it. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, Joanne. Thank you very much for yet again uh, insightful conversation. And I, ho- I hope you, everybody has enjoyed it the same way I've done it. Uh, until we meet again, it has been my pleasure. Thank you and good evening.